Welcome back to the Evidence-Based Rheumatology Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Putman, and this is episode 29, the CERT trial and the CANTOS trial. That's right, we're doing two papers in one today. The reason is that I think these trials go well together. They both tackled a relatively similar question in a relatively similar way using two drugs that we use relatively frequently, and both studies essentially made no significant impact on my practice. That being said, you're going to hear about this a lot, and I think it's great to have both of these trials in your back pocket. So for starters, the CERT trial was the low-dose methotrexate for the prevention of atherosclerotic events trial. It was published by Ridker et al. in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2018. The CANTOS trial was the anti-inflammatory therapy with canakinumab for atherosclerotic disease trial, published in 2017 by Ridker et al. in the New England Journal of Medicine. That group has been very busy with these trials lately. For background, there's a lot of evidence that inflammation plays a critical role in atherosclerosis and atherothrombosis, to be more specific, based on the way that they designed these trials. So there's good evidence that downstream biomarkers of inflammation, like CRP and IL-6, are associated with an increased risk of cardiovascular events. We all know that statins reduce LDL cholesterol and that that's a probable mechanism for how they help with atherosclerosis, but they also have a number of pleiotropic effects, including reduction in inflammation. Now, in our diseases, there's good observational data that patients who have psoriasis or rheumatoid arthritis and take methotrexate do better from a cardiovascular perspective. There's also good evidence that interleukin-1-beta markedly reduces plasma levels of IL-6 and CRP, again, both important measures of inflammation. Already, you have two things that I hate here. The first, observational studies, which are usually bunk, and the second, surrogate endpoints, which are a disaster. Combine a compelling case of bioplausibility, and you have yourself the trifecta, observational studies, surrogate endpoints, and bioplausibility. Great reasons to spend millions of dollars on trials that ultimately show no benefit. We'll get to that, though. Now, my plan for today is to talk about them in turn. I'll do the methods and results of the CERT trial first, then we'll do methods and results of the Kenakinumab trial, and at the end, we'll talk about both of them and what they've done for practicing rheumatologists. So the CERT trial, remember, this is methotrexate versus placebo for atherosclerotic events, was a randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled trial. A lot of things that I like right there. It was approved by an IRB at 417 centers in North America. This was a very large trial. To get into it, you had to have a history of myocardial infarction or multivessel coronary disease and either type 2 diabetes or the metabolic syndrome. So these are people who have a lot of coronary stuff going on. You couldn't get into this trial if you had chronic infections, interstitial pneumonitis, pulmonary fibrosis, or you were receiving glucocorticoids. So there's a lot of people with cardiac stuff in this trial, not a lot of people with rheumatologic stuff in this trial. There's an interesting thing they did at the beginning where there was an open-label run-in phase for five to eight weeks where patients got methotrexate to ensure that they tolerated it. I never know how I feel about this. That is kind of how we practice, where if someone doesn't tolerate a medicine up front, we will pull it off and stop it. That being said, it also creates a selection bias in the trial where you're weeding out people who didn't tolerate it from the beginning. Mixed feelings, I think it was reasonable. Now, they called this low-dose methotrexate, but patients initially started on 15 milligrams and went up to 20 milligrams at four months. So I would call this actual-dose methotrexate, because that's about what most of us use. 
Mind you, at four months, people went from 15 to 20. So theoretically, they may have been unblinded at that point if they suddenly started to experience some GI side effects. The primary endpoint was the first occurrence of a major adverse cardiovascular event. For that, they had a composite of non-fatal MI, non-fatal stroke, or cardiovascular death. It's pretty reasonable. It's standard for this kind of cardiology trial. Unfortunately, they weren't getting the numbers they wanted, so they expanded their endpoint. Ooh, no good. The new endpoint was hospitalization for unstable angina that led to urgent coronary revascularization. Ouch. That's not necessarily a surrogate endpoint, because patients do care about that, but it's not necessarily an objective endpoint. There are plenty of people who have unstable angina and get revascularized who may have not needed it. So unlike death, this isn't a thing that I can say is unequivocally a good endpoint. Now, an interesting thing about this trial is that it never actually concluded. Before they even managed to sneak in their extra little endpoint, a monitoring board recommended early termination because they'd crossed a pre-specified boundary for futility. The nice thing about that is that they didn't expose any more patients to a therapy that wasn't helping. The downside is that you always wonder if they'd kept going if they would have found something. I don't think that's true here, and we'll get into that a little later. So out of 9,321 potential participants, that's a lot of people, a little over 6,000 were eligible, and 4,700 and change ultimately completed the run-in phase. Let's talk about those people. In general, they're 66 years old. They're mostly men, over 80%. There was a relatively good percentage of non-white patients, 20%, which I always appreciate. 90-some percent of people had hypertension, and the majority had had a myocardial infarction, 60.1%. 39 and change had had multivessel coronary disease, these are sick people with a lot of coronary stuff going on. The median high sensitivity to CRP was 1.5. So that's not much for a patient with rheumatoid arthritis. For someone who doesn't have any diseases at all, that is something to look at. I'm going to cut right to the chase now and talk about their endpoints. So for the primary endpoint of major adverse cardiovascular event or hospitalization for unstable angina, you know, the one they snuck in there, 201 patients in the methotrexate group met it and 207 in the placebo group there was no statistically significant difference. For the original endpoint, no statistically significant difference. For death from any cause, no statistically significant difference. For major cardiovascular events, coronary revascularization or hospitalization, for congestive heart failure or death from any cause, no statistically significant difference. There was just no difference between taking methotrexate and placebo with respect to cardiovascular disease. Now, the really interesting thing about this trial is it is the largest randomized controlled trial of methotrexate, I think, ever. We certainly have nothing even close to it in rheumatology. So this is a nice way to learn about the side effects in a way that isn't confounded by the usual issues we encounter with observational studies. Overall, methotrexate was really well tolerated. And mind you, they call this low dose, but these patients were on about 20 milligrams on average. So these patients were getting a hefty amount of methotrexate. So for any adverse events... There's 62 per 100 person years in methotrexate and 56 in placebo. That was statistically significantly different, but it's really not that different. Over something like 4,000 patients, it was a difference of 90 people. Not bad. Infection was slightly higher in the methotrexate group, 659 versus 584. So, you know, something like 60 more infections out of 4,500 people. Not too bad. GI disorders, a little bit more common with methotrexate, 7.8 versus 6.23 per 100 person years. Again, not that bad. So a take-home for me is that methotrexate is pretty well tolerated, which is what I tell patients. 
There were significant differences in the other things that we'd expect, including mouth sores and changes in your LFTs. And there was a little more unintended weight loss in the methotrexate group. That was statistically significant, but it was really only 30 people. So treating 4,000 people to get 30 to lose a little bit of weight, probably not a reasonable treatment strategy. Finally, and unfortunately, there was a significant difference in the rate of non-basal cell skin cancer. 31 patients in the methotrexate group and 10 in the placebo group. It's unfortunate. You never want to see that kind of thing. We do see this in TNF inhibitors. It's the only cancer risk that I actually believe in in those drugs. And it does seem to be a thing here. That's a relatively small absolute increase, which I'll talk about more later. But the skin cell thing looks to me like it's the real deal. And it's something I'm going to have to add to my standard speech when I'm giving patients methotrexate. Overall assessment before we get to Cantos, I think this is a great trial. It answered an important question regarding methotrexate, placebo. There's no difference in mortality. There's no benefit, surrogate outcomes. It was relatively well tolerated. And unfortunately, there's a signal towards cancer. Speaking of, let's get back to the Cantos trial. The Cantos trial was an investigator-driven clinical trial that pitted canakinumab, an IL-1 beta monoclonal antibody, against placebo. It was an international trial involving 39 countries, so a pretty big effort. Patients were enrolled if they had a history of MI and a high level of CRP in the blood, two or more, despite the use of aggressive secondary prevention strategies. So this is adding canamikinumab to people who are already being treated for coronary artery disease. People were excluded for chronic or recurrent infections, suspected or known immunocompromised states, risk of TB, HIV, or, and here's the kicker, ongoing use of other systemic anti-inflammatory treatments. Again, a lot of coronary disease here, not a lot of rheumatology. Patients were initially assigned 1 to 1 to 1 to placebo, canakinumab at 150 or canakinumab at 300. They were told to add a 50 milligram group, which is somewhat irrelevant. But anyways, there are four groups, three doses of canakinumab and one placebo. The primary endpoint was the first occurrence of non-fatal MI, any non-fatal stroke, or cardiovascular death. I like that. Secondary endpoints were the components of the primary endpoint. I like that too. The trial was designed to accrue a total of 1,400 primary endpoints. That is crazy. So 1,400 events and something that's not very common meant that they needed to have at least 10,000 patients. It's a pretty big trial. For rheumatology, these numbers are kind of ridiculous. So let's get to the results. Of 17,482 patients who had MI and underwent screening, 10,061 were randomized. Again, this is an astonishing amount of patients receiving canakinumab. Those patients were somewhat similar to the methotrexate group. Age was around 61. The vast majority, um, 75% or so, were male. The majority had diabetes and hypertension. And almost 90% of patients had had a heart attack, STEMI or non-STEMI, at some point. Well over half had a history of PCI, 14% had a cabbage, and 1 in 5 had heart failure. The median high sensitivity CRP was a little higher than in the CERT trial at 4.10. Again, it's a high sensitivity CRP, so not terribly high for rheumatology, but not normal for an otherwise healthy patient. So what were the results? So at 48 months, the reduction of the high sensitivity CRP was 26% in the group that received 50 milligrams of canakinumab, 37% in the 150 milligram group, and 41% in the 300 milligram group. That's really impressive. They reduced the CRP by 41%. I hope you're sensing my sarcasm to this microphone. That is super meaningless. Yes, IL-1 inhibition lowers your CRP. Whoop-dee-doo. Let's talk about some outcomes that we actually care about. 
So regarding the primary endpoint, remember, first occurrence of non-fatal MI at any stroke or cardiovascular death, there was a statistically significant difference between placebo and the canon-kinemab groups. There are 4.5 incidents per 100 person years in the placebo group and 3.9 incidents per 100 person years in the canon-kinemab group. That's kind of exciting. As far as revascularization was concerned, 3.61 per 100 person years versus 2.53 in the canon-kinemab group. The p-value on that was less than 0.001. Cardiovascular death, not significant. Cardiovascular death or death of unknown cause, not significant. Non-cardiovascular death, not significant. Death from any cause, not significant. So what we see here is significant differences between placebo and canon-kinemab groups with their endpoints of various cardiovascular events that don't really translate into death. But let's talk about that a little bit. So there's a big difference between significance and importance. What do I mean by that? Significance is a statistical term that refers to whether or not an outcome is likely due to chance. In this case, this outcome was likely not due to chance. Now, p-values have nothing to do with the effect size. There's a reason this trial had 10,000 people in it. It's because they're looking for a relatively small effect size. And if you think there's a small effect size, you need a lot of people to really narrow your confidence intervals and differentiate that effect from the noise. The lovely thing about rheumatology is a lot of our drugs have a big effect size. Giving someone an IL-17 inhibitor for psoriasis, something like 60 or 70% of people will improve who won't improve with a placebo. You need to do that twice to see a benefit. Cardiovascular studies, often the absolute benefit is relatively small, so you need to see an extraordinarily high number of patients get the drug before you can actually differentiate the signal from the noise. So let's talk about that here. This 100-person years business, I think it's the right way to analyze this statistically, but unfortunately, I think it's somewhat opaque from a clinical perspective. I like the absolute risk reduction and the number needed to treat. So the absolute risk reduction is pretty simple, and I calculated it just looking at their table. So for the placebo group, for the primary endpoint, remember that's a bunch of MI, stroke, etc., 15.9 patients had that event over 48 months, versus 14.2% in the 300-milligram group of canakinumab. So that's a 1.7% absolute risk reduction. That is not very much. You have to treat 60 patients to present one episode of their composite endpoint. Remember, that's a composite endpoint. There's no difference in mortality from cardiovascular disease, all-cause mortality, or really any kind of mortality for that matter. Most of this difference was driven from revascularization, which happened in 12.5% placebo versus 9% in the 300-milligram canakinumab group. That's a 3.5% difference. This goes back to what I said before, revascularization is kind of an objective endpoint, but it's kind of not an objective endpoint. Now, if you're looking at the trial yourself, you can see their graphs. They're pretty hilarious. I've been listening to the Plenary Session podcast recently, and his joke is that if you can squeeze a laser pointer between the lines, you can give the Plenary Session at a major conference. There is no way that I could squeeze a laser pointer between the lines on these Kaplan-Meier curves. Placebo and canakinumab look pretty much identical here. Now, that's all well and good, you'd say. There was a benefit. If we give 60 people canakinumab, we can save someone a cardiovascular event. That's great, right? Well, let's talk about serious adverse events. There was no significant difference in any serious adverse events, but when you looked at specific ones, there was. Canakinumab was associated with more cellulitis, more pseudomembranous colitis, and more fatal infections or sepsis. That's right. There is a statistically significant difference in fatal infections or sepsis. There are 23 in the placebo group, 
And in all doses of canakinumab, there were 78. That means that this drug probably killed 55 people in this trial. That is a very disconcerting result. You say, well, it's only 55 people out of 10,000. But if you're one of those 55 people, that's a horrible, horrible outcome. Now, in fairness, I was just talking about absolute risk reduction. So it's only 0.6% versus 1.6%. That's the number needed to harm of 200. Combine that with the number needed to treat. If you give patients canakinumab over 48 weeks, if you give it to 60 people, you'll prevent one MI or stroke or this composite cardiovascular outcome. And if you do it to 200 patients, one of your patients will die from fatal sepsis or infection. I think that's a sobering outcome and leads me to say that I would never give this for cardiovascular prevention. So let's go to the conclusions. Now, I like to scroll down all the way to the conclusion and give the authors the benefit of the doubt. So I'm going to read their conclusion verbatim. They said, Canakinumab significantly reduced high-sensitivity CRP levels from baseline as compared with placebo without reducing the LDL cholesterol level, and the 150 milligram dose resulted in a significantly lower incidence of recurrent cardiovascular events than placebo. Wow, that is all true, but who cares about your high-sensitivity CRP? Who cares about your LDL cholesterol? The take-home to this point is that if you give this to a lot of people, you will prevent one of their cardiovascular outcomes, and if you give this to 200 people, one of them will probably die from fatal sepsis. That's the take-home from this trial. Don't do it. To make this worse, this was a trial where things like unblinding could occur. So perhaps some of that benefit to the composite outcome did come from unblinding. The other major issue is that they don't even mention the cost once in this entire paper. Canabinab costs something like $200,000 a year. So we're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars for this. And they still went on to ask for FDA approval. The FDA did not approve, and you cannot prescribe this for, cardiovascular, for secondary cardiovascular prevention. So let's summarize the CERT and the CANTOS trial. In conclusion, bioplausibility, not good stuff. Observational studies, not good stuff. Methotrexate or canakinumab for secondary prevention of cardiovascular disease, not good stuff. That being said, both of these trials were done for a relatively short period of time. Theoretically, if you went for longer, you may find something. And most importantly for us, neither of these trials were done on patients with rheumatic disease. So this has basically not changed my practice at all. Aside from being a little bit more worried about canakinumab, knowing that if I give it to 200 people, one of them might die from fatal sepsis, and being a little bit worried about methotrexate and skin cancer. Again, it's 1.2% versus 0.4%, so it's never needed a harm of 125. Both of those medications are still worth giving in diseases where the benefit almost certainly outweighs those risks, but it's something to consider. And I have to thank these authors for A, doing a very large trial that actually answered the question they set out to answer, B, publishing a negative study, which there's a lot of industry suppression and things like that, so kudos to everyone for going through and showing us these results, and C, for more or less being honest with what they saw. I don't love the way they phrase the conclusions in the Kenakinumab trial, but in fairness to them, a couple paragraphs up, they did say all of the things that I'm complaining about. That's it for this week. Thanks to everyone for listening. If you'd like to give some feedback, please follow me at ebroom on Twitter. And as usual, please share with your friends. We're doing this for free, and I'd love to have more people get to hear it. I'll be taking this week off for the holidays. I hope all of y'all get to spend some quality time with your family and enjoy lots of turkey. Be sure to tune in again next week when we're back from vacation. Thanks again for listening, and have a great day.